Today on Coffee with Cornelius, we are discussing social inequality and how sadly it is often beyond the grasp of policymakers. If you like this content, hit the like button and subscribe if you want to see more. If your father went to university, how likely are you to go to university? If your grandpa was a physician, how likely are you to be in a white collar job? If your ancestors were nobles, are you more likely to be affluent yourself? Contrary to the Horatio Alger myth of American social mobility, the answer to these questions is that you're very likely to take after your parents in terms of social outcomes. Indeed, if you're British and your ancestors attended Oxford or Cambridge in 1800, then you are four times more likely than the average person to attend Oxford or Cambridge today. This is what the research of Gregory Clark shows. Dr. Clark is a professor of economics at the University of California, Davis. He grew up in Scotland and attended the University of Cambridge and Harvard University for his degrees in economics. His research deals with the nature and history of social mobility, and his books include A Farewell to Alms and The Sun Also Rises, Alms, A-L-M-S, Sun, S-O-N, both from Princeton University Press. I'll put a link to both of those books in the description below. Dr. Clark, thank you for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. So I have to ask you this, uh, and I think we'll start with your latest book, but we'll get go backwards in time to your uh, previous book, A Farewell to Arms. But I have to ask you this, A Farewell to Arms, The Sun Also Rises, given the titles of your books, why did you choose the play on words with Ernest Hemingway? Uh, when I was doing my first book, I sent into the publisher a set of 50 suggested possible titles, and I included the actual title as a joke. No way. <laughs> and it took the publisher yeah. half an hour to go back and say, that's it. <laughs> and then for the second book, the one thing I was determined to do was not to have a Hemingway pun. But again, I drew up this list of titles and included and said, well, there is also this Hemingway pun. And again, the publisher said, that's it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and they're and both. Amazing. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, amazingly, I'm actually working on another book now, which is a sequel to the, to the second one. And I'm not sure about this title because it's highly provocative, but it's also a Hemingway pun. And that is, uh, For Whom the Bell Curve Told. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't even uh, think so of that. <laughs> yes, that's seriously under consideration because it is actually a follow-up that we'll, we'll <laughs> talk about about what the role of genetics uh, is in terms of human social outcomes. Uh, well, that is brilliant. And, you know, both these books, both uh, A Farewell to Arms and The Sun Also Rises, deal with genetics. And I think it's important before we start and before we get deep into this to get the terms clear, to avoid confusion. I know there was com some confusion among scholars. I saw Brookings Institute uh, uh, I think, review of your books, which, you know, fell, fell prey to this kind of confusion. But when we're talking about genetics, we're not necessarily talking about race. So could you please define these terms clearly for us? And all I'm talking about in these books is the mechanisms of transmission of social status. And I have nothing to say about any potential differences between races in terms of underlying abilities. And in fact, from what I've seen of the evidence, my expectation is that those racial differences will turn out to be trivial. Uh, and that a lot of uh, what shows up as potential racial differences in societies now is the result of things like selective migration processes. So now if you go to Britain, the country I'm from, who are the underclass in modern Britain? It's whites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> who are the yeah. upper classes? It includes black Africans, Indians. Uh, and so, uh, as I say, I think when these group differences sometimes show up, but I haven't seen any evidence that there's substantial differences between racial groups in any place in the world. Right. So let's start with your latest book, The Sun Also Rises, in which you are able to track social mobility through surnames. Could you explain how you do this? Well, uh, the surname is a very interesting thing because it's inherited from your father, typically, until very recently. And it's a link of people in places like England back to the Middle Ages. Uh, and 
it's, as I say, it's something that people have no direct knowledge of most of their ancestors beyond about three generations. But yet you're linked in this way. And it's also, interestingly, the same as the Y chromosome in terms of its transmission across generations. Uh, and it turns out that if you had complete social mobility, then surnames in general would actually contain very little information about people's social status. But interestingly, in most societies that we can observe, there's a lot of information in surnames about predicting uh, what social outcomes are. And what we can then do is we can, you know, tracking individual social mobility is very difficult because you've got to find these links across multiple generations. But with surnames, the data you need is actually amazingly simple. All you need to know at some earlier period in society is what's the distribution of surnames in the population and what's the dip, dis, distribution in either an elite or an underclass occupation or group. And you can then actually make quite strong inferences about the underlying rates of social mobility in these societies. So what is your central claim in The Sun Also Rises? So what you find is actually a number of unexpected things when you look at surnames. Number one is the incredible persistence of status over many, many generations. And so if you are in the top 1% elite of British society in 1800, it's estimated that for you to get back to the average will take about 10 generations, uh, 300 years. And so there is a surprising amount of persistence, which doesn't show up typically when we look at the normal data on intergenerational uh, correlations. So if I start at the top of the status distribution, it'll take 10 generations for my family to reach the average. That's right. In general. Uh, in general. And we can also observe it going the other way. If you start at the bottom, <laughs> you will get to the average. But again, it's about a 10 generation process if we go to those extremes. Okay, uh, so that's the first kind of very surprising uh, thing. Uh, a second uh, surprising element to this we'll see is that if the, that it seems likely, that, sorry, let me back up a little bit. A second surprising element is that this kind of persistence rate seems surprisingly similar across vastly different societies. And so Sweden has a reputation for very high rates of intergenerational social mobility, but surname persistence is as strong in Sweden as it is in the United States or in Great Britain. And further, if we go back in time in Britain, surname persistence in pre-industrial Britain is as strong as in the Industrial Revolution period, and it's as strong as in the modern world, where we have all kinds of social support, universal education, support for people at the lower end of the distribution. And so, as I say, the first thing is the slowness. The second thing is the apparent resistance of social mobility rates to undergoing any change in response to different social regimes. And I'm actually working on a paper currently on Hungary, where uh, nicely in Hungary, there are certain classes of surnames which were elite in 1800 and are still somewhat elite now. And it turns out if your name ends in Y in Hungary, it's something as simple as this. And it turns out we can then observe what happened to these groups through the communist period and then followed now by what was the liberal democratic, democratic regime in Hungary. You see no change in the underlying rate of social mobility going across that period. And you see exactly the same rate of persistence under communism as you observe in Sweden or in Britain. And so as I say, the, the second very surprising thing is this, that it doesn't seem to change very easily. There are some possibilities that in some societies you could actually change that fairly substantially. And then the third surprising element is that it seems the evidence is consistent with genetics as being the main driver of this effect. And all I'm saying is it's consistent. It's mm -hmm. very hard to rule out genetics as being the source of this, though interestingly, if it's going to be genetics, 
it will depend on there being a very high degree of assortment in marriage across people genetically. Right. Uh, and, and, and so it actually, so it's not purely a kind of biological explanation of persistence. It's actually a combination of a kind of biological transmission, but a very interesting and odd social phenomena of why do we match so tightly to people in terms of their social status, right? Mm -hmm. Why is this the nature of marriage? And also why is that apparently the nature of marriage across almost all societies we can observe? Okay, so genetics seems to be a consistent explanation with, for these data. I'm just wondering, how do we define this genetic advantage? Is there like a genotype or a gene that we can point to that says, oh, this gene is going to lead me to be more likely to be a member of the status elite, I'm more likely to be a professor or so on. How do we define this genetic advantage? Is there, a, do we have the ability to even? Well, no, all I said is that the, uh, mm -hmm is consistent right. with genetic transmission. Now, there's been a lot of progress in terms of these whole genome studies, where now we know that people's propensity to become educated actually is predicted, but predicted by hundreds and hundreds of genes, each of which have a very small effect, right? And so height also is transmitted in this way. And so what, what is interesting actually is that uh, the mechanism of transmission seems to be lots of small elements in genetics that, that are playing a role in this and that will actually then produce a very kind of consistent pattern of uh, transmission. Uh, and, and as I say, we can, the new book that I'm working on is actually all about collecting a set of information on 370,000 people in England over 10 generations, where we know not just the surname, but the individual links of all these people. And we've assembled them into these extensive genealogies. And the purpose of the book will actually be to test what's the mechanism of transmission here. And so we could ask simple questions that, that would be, for example, what happens if your father dies when you're 10 years old? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. On your outcome. The stunning thing, this I was, I'd never even thought about looking at this in the data, but the very clear answer from the data was it makes no difference to your social outcomes. It makes no difference. It makes no difference, right? And, and as it, that is, again, a kind of a stunning, but, and you would think, well, this must be some craziness in this data, but there's actually a recent study done in Sweden which looked at the 1918 flu pandemic. And that kind of randomly swept away a bunch of parents in Sweden. And so then they look at, well, what are the, the, the only outcome they have is occupational status, but they just ask, what's the effect of your father dying or your mother dying? And the answer they get is either it's zero or a tiny inconsequence. We don't know the exact mechanisms of transmission. We have an idea that they tend to be hundreds and hundreds of genes, each playing a very small role. But with data, we can actually look at lots of tests of, is this compatible with what we're seeing, right? I have two questions about the Swedish data, Greg. Number one, I'm just wondering to what extent can we say that the transmission of the flu is in fact random? I mean, I hear that a lot of the flu was transmitted by soldiers returning from World War I. And to that extent, I'm sure that there's some selective pressures in the transmission of the flu. And number two, and this reveals my naivety when it comes to genetics and to the Swedish situation, is the Swedish population sufficiently genetically variable that you can make a conclusion about it? Uh, in other words, are, are, gen are Swedish people you know, genetically different from other Swedish people to the extent that we can say that there are, are differences in underlying genotypes? I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just asking right. the question, yeah. I, I think you know, you, a more you know, pressing objection to the Swedish uh, study would be that maybe Sweden has such a good social welfare system by 1918 that the state can replace your parent. Right. In fact, okay. your parent perfectly. Uh, the interesting thing in the, in the English data is you can go back to 1830 
and losing your parent has no greater effect than in 1930, when there have been these very significant social changes in terms of the kind of support that's available for people. Um, and, and so as I say, so the nice thing is that uh, we don't know the, the mechanisms exactly, but these are processes that we can subject to uh, some kind of test. Uh, and, and one of the other things that I would say that the, the surname pa patterns are actually suggesting is that somehow our social outcomes are not just determined by our parents in some way, right? Because mm -hmm. somehow, uh, because we know at the, at the local level that there's a lot of variation between children and parents, but it turns out that if you want to predict someone's social outcome, information about their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their uncles, their aunts, all of that is very powerfully predictive. And mm -hmm. we can see in this English data yeah. that all your other relatives are actually also predictive. And so I think if you're going to have a social explanation of economic and other outcomes, then and the interesting thing is that you have to have some kind of account about why do my grandparents matter to what my outcomes are going to be, since after all, a lot of us never even meet our grandparents. Right? Mm, true. Before we're born, right? Another thing we can do with this, this new English data is we can show that dead parents predict as well as dead grandparents predict your outcomes as well as living ones. Right. No way. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And dead uncles. Yeah. <laughs> right. And dead grandmothers. And, and so, so as I say, so the, the, the nice thing about uh, these things is that is, and, and what I think we really need to push to in terms of studying social mobility is to have better articulated models of different types, because then we can actually subject these things to some kind of test. And so the only thing I would say about the, you know, you, you, a lot of people have strong objections to the suggestion that the genetics is really 90% or 100% of, of this. But one thing I will say is the genetic model is completely well specified. Mm -hmm. And so all of the predictions of that were actually already uh, set out by Fisher in 1919 in a mm -hmm. film where he showed exactly what the predictions of genetic transmission with these kind of uh, multiple genetic influences would be. Uh, the only problem is for social transmission, we actually don't have such well-defined models. Uh, but as there is this kind of interesting competition, we should be able to set up about these different modes of uh, transmission. And it turns out that uh, one thing that is, is very interesting is that in the book, uh, The Sun Also Rises, I did not know about this special paper. We came up with a simple parsimonious model to attempt to explain why surnames were so persistent, even though individual variation was also very clear. That model is the precise analogy of the Fisher model of transmission mm. of genetics influences and no it turns way. out mathematically it's the same model <laughs> uh, and uh, as I say that's a very kind of nice thing then when when you, you look at the process and you say this is the model you need to describe this uh, and it turns out that that is that model as well uh, so as I say so, so I've actually learned a lot since uh, the sun also rises came out uh, where, where as I say now it's possible even to have much more sophisticated tests of these, the potential that genetics is actually playing a very substantial role. Uh, that's fascinating. Uh, very quickly, what is the quantity that we can ascribe to your descendants? In other words, uh, how much transmission is intergenerational as opposed to due to other factors? Can you assign a number to that? Uh, yes, I think... Um, in the end, actually, less than half of all individual variation mm -hmm. can be predicted by even knowing the entire ancestry of people. There's still a huge amount of individual variation. Um, and actually, that individual variation is, again, quite a significant problem for social theories of transmission. Hmm. 
So to give you an example, uh, you know, I grew up in a family of four. Wow. Uh, and uh, four, you know, the four, uh, three siblings. And we had identical social environments. Our parents had identical expectations. Uh, very interestingly, if you look at a lot of data, there's a lot of variation amongst uh, siblings in terms of outcomes. Mm. And it's actually quite hard to explain uh, where is that variation uh, coming from in terms of social theories. So another thing we could look at with this new data is, for example, does your birth order matter? Oh, so right, yeah. Given a lot of weight to that, it turns out it doesn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's no difference to social outcomes. Mm. The genetic explanation would, would perfectly predict that. Um, and so people have had a lot of difficulty explaining that, but it turns out that a genetic explanation also contains in it, in, in this Fisher model, the simple idea is that there's as much variation between, say, father and son as between son and son under genetic transmission. Mm. And so it predicts that those variation, that correlation should be the same between the father and the son and between two brothers. And it turns out, again, in this English data, we can test that, and it's exactly the same. I mean, it's the same over time. It's the same in the 19th century, same in the 20th century. And, and so, um, as I say, the, 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 uh, the important thing, though, is that uh, in terms of a kind of genetic explanation, that variation is pure randomness. Right? Okay. It's, you know, it, it has no explanation. It's just the randomness of molecules kind of forming themselves into bodies. Uh, and, uh, but it turns out that that randomness is, is still the most important uh, component probably in terms of our social outcomes. So, so when you talk about genetic determinism, it turns out it's actually radical indeterminacy mm -hmm. about not actually determinism. I see. Uh, I'd like to backtrack a little bit. Much of your book examines the transmission of status within elite circles. So you look at samurai in Japan, you look at Oxbridge, matriculants in England, nobility in Sweden, and so on. Are you just capturing the process of status transmission among elites and not the broader population? Yeah, so uh, criticism of the sun also rising uh, was a claim that this was really just about elite persistence. Mm -hmm. And that at the center of the distribution, you would observe uh, much less and much more flux and much more flexibility. So we're talking about the 1%, right? And yeah. what's the existence of the 1%? Um, it turns out, though, that uh, it, the reason we often use elites is that they're actually the best documented groups. And so uh, it, it's much harder to kind of document what's happening at the lower levels of the distribution. Uh, because people, as I say, there is this bias in historical record. However, uh, we've looked at, uh, you know, somewhere like England, uh, we have the complete probate records for people going back to 1858. And so that's actually telling whether you had wealth or not at the time of your death. You can move almost down to the center of distribution and do the same kind of exercise and find the same persistence rates. And so we actually know that much further down the distribution, you're still getting this very considerable uh, persistence. Uh, and then we can also, using these kind of probate records, we can still also observe groups who really don't have any wealth, say in 1800, and observe, well, how quickly do they start actually accumulating some wealth? And you do find that they're moving up and you find that that persistence rate is very, it's just the same as the persistence rate of the people who are moving down from the top. Mm -hmm. and, and so you can actually also use these lead records to see, well, when are people from the bottom actually getting into these elites? Right? And so one study that uh, in the sun also rises looks at the records of Oxford and Cambridge, which go back all the way to 1200. And in 1300 in Oxford and Cambridge, there's no one with a name that suggests that their father was an artisan. So there are no Smiths, there are no Coopers, <laughs> there are mm. no Bakers, right? The only right. people at the university are those named after a place which are much more elite names. We can then look at 
the upward drive of the Smiths. Ah, I and see. Yes, and so even though you're yeah. using the elites here, what you're trying to do is capture when do the lower levels of people break into those elites. And again, you find these very similar rates of persistence. And it turns out within 200 years, the Smiths are as fully represented at Oxford or Cambridge as the per general person in the population. There's actually been complete mobility in medieval England mm. in terms of taking the artisans up to the elite. Uh, but it turns out, though, that that 200 years still represents a very slow rate of social mobility. Fascinating. So this is kind of dark in a way, and that would be in the sense that it would suggest that some policies that we design to combat social immobility, such as things like charter schools or you know maybe social welfare programs, universal health care, for example, uh, all of these are just chimeras. They're just illusory. They're not going to actually tackle the problem of social mobility because it's an intractable problem. How would you respond to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there is a, a, a dark side to this, I think some people would think. But I say it depends how you look at it. In some respect, what I say is, surprisingly, the world is a much fairer place than people have assumed. Mm -hmm that differences in social status are mainly linked to differences in ability and not to who your relatives were, what your connections were, all of the other things that people assume are crucial in this system. And so in that sense, it, it's a good thing. The bad news is it is saying, look, if you don't have these abilities, there's not much we're gonna be able to do to help you. <laughs> and there is gonna be a process of social mobility but you're not going to see it and your children are not going to see it and your grandchildren are not even going to see it. it it'll be 10 generations from now that that will be kind of complete. Uh, and so in some sense that people think of that as a kind of uh, an unpleasant aspect of society. We like to think that everyone with enough hard work and initiative can actually uh, succeed within uh, society. Uh, and I'm afraid that, I mean, the data really, very strongly uh, does not suggest this, right? And so, for example, in this new data set, we have a bunch of relatively poor people in England around about 1800, and we can see that those people are moving up. But it's not that they have become an, a new elite in British society in this period. There is, again, a very, very strong persistence over many generations of relatively modest uh, living conditions. Um, and, and so, as I say, in that sense, uh, it's, um, it's pessimistic uh, about uh, human possibilities. But as I say, it really, you know, it, it's a two-sided coin. <laughs> There's an element of optimism there as well, which is to say that connections, other things we spend so much time worrying about are surprisingly weak forces in terms of determining uh, outcomes. And to take an example of this, for example, uh, I could show you, uh, in England in the 1690s, about 50,000 people arrived who were Huguenot refugees from France. And they had lost most of their possessions in the course of this flight. Uh, they were outsiders to English society. They were French speakers who had their own form of religion, you know, their own churches initially. Uh, that group has become a very important component of the intellectual upper classes of English society in subsequent generations. And in some sense, we don't know so much about them because they were completely absorbed, right? But the founder of the Bank of England was one who was a Huguenot. <laughs> Pigou, the economist, is a Huguenot. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so what you actually see that even in 18th century or 19th century England, which we think of as a kind of fossilized aristocratic society, a new group of people with talent was actually successfully completely absorbed into English society and moved to the top of that society. And so as I say, that's the things I'd like to emphasize in terms of that, that there is this uh, positive uh, uh, element uh, but I'm afraid for societies such as the United States, 
where there are still amongst different ethnic groups substantial differences in economic outcomes and occupational outcomes. What the prediction here is that even if there's no group prejudices in this society, it's going to be a very, very long time before those, dis those group level differences disappear. Right. That's and, uh, 300 years is what you, yeah, you say in the book. Right. right. And, and the only thing we can say though, is the big factor that will lead to the disappearance of these differences is intermarriage. Intermarriage. And so I, I like to ask right. a question about that because, you know, you watch something like Downton Abbey or you watch one of these shows on BBC mm -hmm. in which it's set in the 19th century and the parents are very concerned that their daughters marry wealthy men or men of status. And in Downton Abbey, there's a huge scandal when one of the daughters decides to run away with this Irish uh, driver that they employ. Uh, now, looking at that as modern people, and I, I certainly don't condone that. I think people should be free to marry whoever they want. But uh, what I'm trying to suggest that, that is that if your story is right, there is a logic, at least evolutionarily or genetically, perhaps in, in that kind of custom. Is that correct? Uh, so, so one of the other investigations I've, I've been conducting recently mm. is, uh, uh, let me just uh, take a step back. Sure. One fear that people had, and people like uh, the, uh, books like The Rise of the Meritocracy, has been that before something like 1900, women had no formal occupational or educational status in society mm -hmm. like Britain. And so the argument has been, well, look, marriage must have been much less about assortment by the abilities or talent of women and much more about what's their social class or what's their physical attractiveness. But we've now moved to a world where everyone has not just one degree, but multiple degrees. <laughs> sure, yeah. All kinds of markers of status. And so that what is happening is we're going to be moving into a society where there's more and more assortment, right? And so internet dating sites can easily have, we can have filters that say, I'm only interested in someone from uh, an Ivy League school. Yeah. I, I want to date people of, you know, above 100,000 income per year. <laughs> yeah, and, sure. Right. And, and so there has been, the, and, and so there has been this fear that we're actually going to be moving to a world of greater inequality. Mm -hmm. One of the things that assortative mating will produce is greater yeah. variation. And secondly, much more persistence. So uh, since 1837, when you get married in England, there's a marriage certificate drawn up and that records the occupation of the groom and the bride, and also the occupation of the groom's father and the bride's father. Ah, useful. Right, and so it's possible to take that data, so now I've actually looked at it, and to say, is there a sign that sons, now unfortunately women don't have occupations before even the 1920s or 30s, but you can look at, well, what's the correlation of the son with his own father, and what's the correlation of the son with his wife's father? And the answer on the English data is that that correlation is almost as strong with your father-in-law as with your father, all the way back to 1837. Cool. What it's actually saying is there's been no increase in the degree of assortment in marriage. Assortment in marriage has always been very, very strong. And that would help explain why we're not observing any substantial change in rates of social mobility, because somehow we're living in a world where this institution of assortment in terms of marriage is a very persistent uh, institution. So it doesn't matter whether it's formally implemented or whether people just informally freely choose their partners, this assortative mating will happen. Right. And, and as I say, in, in England, marriage in the pre-industrial world, in fact, all the way through has not changed that much. People typically don't get married, men until they're in their late 20s, and women until about age 23 to 25. And so these people, even if they're from, from working class families, were actually very independent of their own families by then. Mm -hmm. Most women had moved out, were living as servants or working in some other household. Uh, and so in some sense, they, you know, the, the parents also have very little control over their marriages because there's no assets to inherit. There's yeah. just approval of your parents. 
in upper class marriages, there was much more of an issue with the families because it would be expected that if the groom was bringing capital to the marriage, that the white, the bride's family would also have to contribute. Mm. So there we can think of, you know, families as actually mattering much more. But, but the interesting thing in this data is that even for working class families, if you're a laborer, you're very much more likely to marry the daughter of a laborer than you are to marry the daughter of a carpenter or a blacksmith or someone who's a bit higher in the occupational hierarchy. And so as I say, it, it's an interesting feature. Unfortunately, the British data doesn't go back before 1837 because it would be very nice to see, is this just been a persistent feature of this society? But as I say, at the social level, it will have this effect of actually increasing substantially the range of abilities observed in any society. If you start doing this for generation after generation, you'll gradually widen the distribution of abilities. Mm -hmm. However abilities are inherited, as long as they're inherited, and as long as they're inherited equally from the mother as from the father, uh, it will have this effect. Uh, and so one of the things that's intriguing me now is, I mean, we're always struggling to find an explanation for the Industrial Revolution in certain societies, such as in pre-industrial Europe, where this marriage would not have any effect on average ability levels in any society, but it would have this significant effect on widening the distribution of abilities. Mm -hmm. And the Industrial Revolution really is a product of some kind of upper group who now master kind of basic science and other elements that allow this kind of technological advance, you know, is there some kind of long history in, in some sense of an institution as simple as marriage that underlies why some societies might be able to make these breakthroughs and other societies would actually struggle, right? Because interestingly, if you go to the Middle East, uh, there's an institution there which is very common, which is cousin marriage. Yeah. And, and often there'll be very specific rules that an eligible spouse for you will be, if you're a male, it'll be the daughter of your mother's brother, right? <laughs> and it actually leads to actually a very limited set of potential spouses. And I was interested in, well, will that lead to a high degree of assortment in marriage? And interestingly, the answer is no, there would be less assortment that's weird. Yeah. Marriage than we seem to observe through the types of marriage that people were undergoing in England, right? Because then mm -hmm. you get to choose based on the individual characters sure. of your, your wife's cousin's son or whatever, right? And, and, and as I say, I mentioned already, there's a lot of variation at the family level in terms of people's characteristics. And so in, in some sense, actually, Western marriage somehow has evolved in many ways to be closer in cousin marriage in terms of the characteristics of the people who are getting married, right? Fascinating, and, fascinating. An unexpected yeah. uh, feature uh, of, our, of, of Western society. Um, and so again, it would be interesting uh, now kind of to say, well, you know, what about China? What about Japan? Uh, what are the, the kind of characteristics of marriage in these societies as well? And what effect are they going to have on social mobility rates and also on, on this other question of inequality and the distribution of, of abilities within the society? Okay, so let's take your findings from The Sun Also Rises and project it onto economic growth, which is the topic of your previous book, A Farewell to Arms, in which you posit that the Industrial Revolution can be explained by the social elite having more children than the lower classes. Could you just explain your uh, thesis briefly? Sure. Um, and so, you know, it, in these early societies, it's often very hard to get good kind of demographic information. But it turns out that England has this one amazing source is something like 10 million wills made by typically men in pre-industrial England. And these were preserved in a whole variety of places. And even a bunch of them, they're very hard to read, they're in handwriting, but have actually been transcribed. And one surprising and interesting thing about these wills is there's evidence that people tended to name all of their children in these early wills. Mm. And we can look at that by looking at, well, how many boys are there relative to girls? Because when girls got married, they often got a dowry from the parents 
And that kind of canceled out any future claim they'd have on the assets of the family. Mm. And so they are often mentioned in wills, but with a statement, well, you're not going to get anything, though, because you've had your share already. Sure. But it seems that they were naming everyone. And then it turns out that the richer are the fathers, the more of these children are they naming in pre-industrial England. And we mm. can track that all the way from 1500 up towards about 1780. And after that, that, that differential actually tends, disappears. But the differential exists for at least 300 years. And we can actually then even go back to the Middle Ages and show that this differential existed also. And since the book came out, there have actually been interesting demographic studies in China, which show a similar pattern, that higher status, wealthier parents actually have more surviving children in this world. And so I was just then interested, you know, and the background to this is I got into economic history, like most people who study economic history, thinking that, oh, this is all going to be about the institutions of different societies, right? And what we need to understand, to understand an element such as the Industrial Revolution, is why it took so long to have an appropriate set of institutions that would then liberate economic growth. Yeah. And I actually went through a kind of a 10 to 20 year process of kind of disillusionment about yeah. the power of these institutional explanations. Uh, because at least in studying English history, what you actually see is a surprising degree of continuity in England. But then, of course, you, you're getting these very dramatic changes in economic growth within that society. And so the problem of the Industrial Revolution is that, you know, it really gets going around about 1800. Essentially, in the previous 100 years in English society, there are only the most incremental changes in the institutional structure. And so it's very hard to understand why the Industrial Revolution is 1800 as opposed to 1700 or even 1600 in England. And so coming towards this, I, I had this background problem that if you don't believe institutions are the key, what else could potentially be a driver of something like the Industrial Revolution? And also, how do you explain this kind of 5,000-year gap between the arrival of agrarian societies with relatively stable property rights and a subsequent world where we actually get fairly rapid economic growth, right? Mm -hmm. What's the between the Greeks and us, or between the Romans and us, or between the Egyptians and us, that allows for economic growth then, now, but doesn't allow it then. And one of the things that uh, was a striking kind of interesting possibility is that if you have genetic transmission of abilities in a society, then differential fertility across the social spectrum can cumulatively have very large effects in terms of the overall level of abilities in that society. Uh, and so that's why the kind of discovery that England in some sense was a breeding ground for the upper classes in all of the pre-industrial pre period, we're talking at least 600 years here, uh, you could actually model that and you would actually see significant changes in the underlying characteristics of the society would come as a result of this. And so it seemed a kind of an interesting possibility to consider about how we got to the modern world. And, and there is this, this kind of odd puzzle that if we look out now, say on the, the agricultural landscape around about you, what you see is that every animal that humans have domesticated has dramatically changed from its wild form. Right? Mm. Modern pigs, modern cows, modern uh, you know, chickens, they've all dramatically been changed by mankind, and dogs as well. So the assumption of a, a lot of us is that the only truly wild creature in human society are humans. <laughs> <laughs> right. We are the only set of people <laughs> who have not changed from our completely wild form, right? And it's just the thin kind of patina of civilization that separates us from the kind of the lifestyle of the original hunter-gatherers. And as I say, it, it struck me that under the influence of kind of uh, Darwinian, not 
women, but, but Malthusian mechanisms, which mean that only two children can survive from each person, right, in this society, that there must also have to consider the possibility that there were selective mechanisms within human society that were actually influencing the evolution of human psychology and human behavior uh, over this period. And in the original book, uh, A Farewell to Arms, I said, but since then I've come to actually believe much more that, that any of these selection mechanisms were actually going to be encoded in people's genes, that it was actually going to be uh, kind of mm -hmm. genetic mechanisms. Fascinating. So the elite have more kids and those kids can't all inherit the estate. So they're kind of filtering down to the middle classes, right? That's right. And so in the society, in the end, if the elite are super fecund, then eventually their kids are going to be the people who are also occupying the bottom 10% of the mm -hmm. society, right? And so uh, basically that you're going to have this kind of interesting influence where you're, you've got, you know, uh, one particular social group taking over uh, most of the society. Uh, and the, the interesting possibility was but that that could actually have significant influences on the way people behaved. And so, for example, um, early societies are much more violent than we typically are. Uh, the, and so, you know, we had recent large-scale civil unrest in the United States, but it's mm -hmm. interesting that we did not have significant casualties, right? We did not lose significant numbers of people, even in this period of kind of uh, unrest. Uh, early societies uh, often have significant fraction of people who are going to die violently in those societies. And so the interesting question that arises is, are, are we, it's all about our training, our upbringing, you know, uh, it's certainly not the kind of movies we watch. We watch movies of astonishing levels of violence now, yeah. right? Uh, but that, or is it that we've actually lost some of our predisposition towards violence? That is not a useful reproductive strategy anymore, right? Fascinating. And because what you see is that the people who are succeeding are not those who engage in warfare or in political intrigue at the highest level. It's the people doing the ordinary commercial activities. It's the people who are high civil servants. Uh, these are the people who are reproductively succeeding in this society. And so in some sense, did we, did we domesticate ourselves uh, through uh, the operation of uh, the market economy, right? Have we adapted to the market, right? And one unpleasant aspect of that adaptation is have we also become a set of people who are just have an inbuilt tendency to accumulate material stuff? Right? Yeah. Because now, I mean, the puzzle is, as we face global warming, you know, and as, for example, in this lockdown that we're under, one of the things I've noticed is actually, why are we earning all of this income and what would we do with this, right? Because sure. You don't need to travel all the time. You don't need to go to rest, no. right? And you and, don't need multiple clothes like we have now, right? <laughs> right. And the other thing is, we've been going out on long walks through the town, and it's just striking. You see these giant houses that people are living in, and you think no one needs this space. <laughs> no <laughs> one needs a three-car garage, right? No. Uh, most people, some people have boats outside their houses. No one actually needs a boat. You can live life perfectly well without a boat. Uh, and, and so one of the, the kind of odd features, as I say, of the modern world is that when incomes rose after the Industrial Revolution, we could perfectly well have consumed a lot of that income in the form of more leisure, more poetry, more art, more friendship, you know. Uh, what we've actually chosen to do, though, mostly, is to accumulate material things. We work True. almost as hard now as we did on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and we've, we've chosen this particular path, which has disastrous consequences mm -hmm. for the world as a whole. And for one the environment, of, yeah. Right. One of the interesting puzzles is, uh, in some sense, 
have, are we condemned to always follow this path, right? Is it just in our natures now that we are the descendants of people who were committed to accumulation and that somehow this is our fate? And so as I say, I, I you know, the, the book, uh, Farewell to Arms, it was not proving things, but it did raise, I think, some interesting issues about in a world where you have a long kind of Malthusian interval, where we're being shaped by kind of what survives and what is transmitted, that we certainly have to think about what effects this may have had on human culture, and even more potentially on human genetics within these mm -hmm. societies. And that we may have a kind of an, an interesting kind of legacy. Uh, and, and so, so as I say, this, this book again has, um, it has these, these elements that people find difficult, but I think th these are actually legitimate issues of inquiry. Uh, and, and, you know, and do raise these kind of interesting issues about this potential interplay between human culture, human society, and the long past. Uh, that we've actually, uh, we're all the, the inheritors of. So I've got to ask you now, and some people might say this about your book, that it encourages or it implies that if you want economic growth, you should endorse some kind of eugenicist policy. And that might not be something that is direct. It could be any kind of policy that encourages the social elite to have more children and lower classes to have fewer kids. Uh, what would you say to that? Um, well, the first thing I would actually say is that prescription can be made without any reference to genetics. Okay. Right. Yeah, and, and I, I, would, I would agree with that, yeah. This is That's nothing true, yeah. about genetics. If you said yeah. to me, would, it, would America be better off if we doubled the share of people in the top 10% of the current distribution, or if we doubled the share of people in the bottom 10%, mm -hmm. you would say, oh, no, we would have, things would be better. These would be people yeah. paying more taxes, contributing less uh, social uh, issues. Uh, and and so, so as I say, so, so in some sense, this is, it's completely independent, right? So, so the trouble is once you introduce the, the genetic element, then people <laughs> really think that, that this is uh, crazy. So the second thing I would say is, if you look at people's individual behavior, suppose that there was some minimum you could take that would increase the IQ of the child you were carrying by 10 points. I don't think there's anyone in American society who would not take that vitamin, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, probably not. No, I don't think there's anyone <laughs> who would not say, take the vitamin, right? And so again, uh, and that doesn't have to even have to do again with genetics, right? And so everyone, uh, and and so it is. I think the curse of our society that, in some sense, we have a strong ideological commitment to cherishing every member of the society from the bottom to the social rung to the top, right? And we genuinely have this commitment, right? But the second point, though, is that almost every parent in American society or in Canadian society is working 10 hours a day trying to push their kid further up on this ladder, right? And implicitly saying, we value people at the top of this rung much more than we value people at the bottom of this rung, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I would say is that absolutely, these uh, findings would say that the future direction of societies will then be strongly influenced by differential uh, fertility across social classes and that if you got certain types of leaders in those societies they would say we should take active policies to move in these directions uh, but uh, the only 
thing that would, would stop people thinking that this was going to be the case, right, would be a very radical view of social status, which would say that at birth, everyone has exactly the same potential social mm-hmm. outcome. And all differences in social outcome are the product of uh, family structure and class structure within societies. And as I say, it, it, it turns out we know empirically that that's not the case, right? And so we have a significant problem, I think, in social science, which is that in physics, we don't really care what is the nature of the quark structure or stuff like that, right? We can be dispassionate about the way the atoms are arranging themselves. But the trouble is we're so invested in social explanations that I think that it makes it very hard to do objective social science. And I've actually noticed this in the course of trying even to publish things, that it's much easier to publish certain types of results than others. Mm-hmm. Right? And that we really, I mean, the problem as I say is that we, we really do have this kind of commitment. And so one example I'll give you is that, um, uh, there's a, a, a strong kind of ideological belief in modern society that education is universally good and that the more education you give people, the better off they'll be all the way across the educational distribution, right? Yeah. And, and now we, we're committed to spending maybe 7 to 10% of national output on education each year. So as part of this other study uh, that I've done and, and, uh, on these English families, we're finding that, you know, nothing seems to matter here, right? The rise of popular education is not doing anything to change the in these families. And so we actually had enough data that we thought, well, we can actually do a test directly of does education have any benefit for people? And what happened in England is that in 1921, uh, 1949 and 1972, the government extended the number of years of compulsory education you had to have. Mm. And we have very large scale data where we can look at the people the year before that extension came in and the year after. And we can then, and we know exactly how much extra education they got. And it was something like half a year in the case yeah. of each extension. And what I can report is those extensions of education had zero effect on the cohorts who got the extra education. <laughs> Nothing. That's amazing. They live longer. We know their house values in 1999. You can trace a whole, and now we're talking about thousands and thousands of people. There's no perceptible impact. We know where they live when they die, what the neighborhood quality was. There's no evidence of, of any effect. And since education has a social cost, and it also has a cost on the people who are now being forced to spend a half a year in school with, or a year in school that they wouldn't otherwise have spent. Uh, the, the interesting thing is that, uh, that you know, there, there really is, you know, from the study, and then we were curious about, you know, what about all these other studies of the value of education? And amazingly, there's a whole set of papers that look at the extensions of compulsory education, a number of them coming from Canada, where, these results either find no effect or a very substantial effect. And you think, what kind of science are we in? <laughs> uh, and, and it makes you, as I say, wonder about what's the reviewing process like? And is it the case that basically we have a prejudice where if people were finding negative effects of education, those papers would just never get published? Sure. They wouldn't. No one would think that was plausible, right? But if people find a 20% effect of education, people say, great, <laughs> right? And what's then happening is that you've got this censoring of these results. Whereas if we saw all of the studies that people have done, we would conclude it could be negative, zero, or positive. It's nothing on average. It's just noise in this process. So as I say, I, I think that the, the, you know, the, the issue you raised about you know, is a, is a logical, you know, not logical, but, but a conclusion of this research be that we should foster fertility for upper class groups in society. Uh, it's a difficult question. Uh, it's one I would prefer not to even answer, right? Mm-hmm. Because I have to make that decision. Uh, but 
it's, it's not in any sense unique to the finding of the mechanisms of transmission mm-hmm. kind of social status within society. Uh, so I'd like to ask Greg, what advice would you give to those interested in economic history, doing it as a career? So economic uh, history is, it's, it's, uh, my advice is guarded in terms of doing this as a career. It turns out that some of the people who have been doing economic history type stuff have actually flourished dramatically in academia, right? And so a bunch of winners of the top awards recently have done history papers. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you know, history is in some sense being embraced more within the mainstream. Econometrica is publishing history papers. Um, but uh, what I would say is that the current interest in history that is kind of, that's making it fashionable, that's propelling things up, uh, a bunch of that is towards this idea of discovering persistence. Yeah. And discovering that events in 1300 somehow still are affecting <laughs> yeah. 2000. And uh, there's recent studies that actually suggest that that persistence literature is methodologically uh, very dubious. Morgan Kelly, I think, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. So Morgan Kelly, I think, has raised very serious doubts about this. And then the other worry, again, I have about that is that if you went to an editor of a paper and said, look, what happened in Peru in 1300 has no effect on what's happening in Peru now, that paper is not going to even, it'll get desperate. Yeah. Nobody right? will care. Right? And so the persistence literature, it only exists when a pers- an effect is found. And there's just too much stuff that people are going to look at out there. And so what I would say is I then have this guarded view that history actually is in a good moment in that sense, that people are interested, that people can publish well, that people have had big rewards from doing this. Uh, unfortunately, it's because of a certain approach that I think is fundamentally somewhat uh, mm-hmm. problematic. Um, and so I think, you know, in my time in history, it's always remained a relatively modest area. So my advice to, would be, if you want the rewards in terms of salary, in terms of prestigious locations and stuff like that, I wouldn't advise you to pursue history as a field. But the nice thing about history is, I think it offers a career where you can continue much longer, that even though I'm now in my early 60s, I think I can still contribute. Mm -hmm. And so it does have this advantage of kind of longevity. It also, and you know, for me, an important thing is I want to be interested in the stuff that I'm doing. And there's a lot of content. I feel I learn new stuff all the time. I come across new areas. I get to kind of devolve more into things like sociology or anthropology, stuff like that. And so in intellectual terms, I think the rewards are actually good, but in some sense, you've got to make this uh, trade-off. And if you pursue uh, your own path, uh, there is a cost, Uh, but, you know, I can't complain for for myself, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which, you know, I've had a very good academic life, I've got to do stuff I've been interested in. I get very well rewarded for doing this. Um, and, and, so, and, and the other thing I would say is that there seems to be a genuine kind of blossoming of interest in history in Europe. More in so history now, of Europe, you said? It, within Europe. In oh, Europe, I see. Institutions, right? right. And so what I think is that in some sense, I think US history has played out a little bit in terms of a kind of an exhaustion of topics or material. But there's been a kind of a rise of history of other areas, other countries, other places, and lots of interest uh, in the other uh, areas. So I say it's a kind of a, it's a mixed uh, uh, verdict uh, on history. Uh, I think it'll always exist or something. Um, but you, you know, my general sense of economics has been that it's it's a very still a very ideological subject. Mm-hmm. 
and we are not science. <laughs> no. And, and so one thing that I think about history is that, again, it's not so ideological as some other areas in economics, right? And, and, and these ideological elements are actually some that are very, you know, macro, that are very hard in terms of kind of free market interpretations. But it also turns out that in some other areas, if you go to areas of kind of labor and stuff like that, I think there's almost an equivalent kind of ideological commitment to the idea of social policy must be able to actually generate significant positive outcomes for societies. Well, that's good realistic advice. And I'd like to thank you for coming on. I'd just like to ask you, finally, where can we find you and where can we follow your work? You don't have a Twitter, I don't think, but can we follow no, you no. in other ways? Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of old-fashioned. So one thing I would say is for this new uh, study, we actually have a website, uh, Families of England, where we're going to be posting a bunch. There's some papers up there already on various aspects of this, and we'll be posting a bunch more. Uh, and so I would recommend that. And then I'm hoping to update my own website and, and get this new material. It's been accumulating up there. But I don't uh, do Twitter. I don't, uh, you know, and I think given the topics that I'm now exploring, probably best. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Twitter can be pretty toxic. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, not to get into uh, this particular area. But if people are interested, there's a number of uh, things that I have up on YouTube that just ended up there. Yeah. So there's a whole set of lectures based on the book that's at uh, like iTunes University, I think, mm -hmm. a whole set of lectures. And there's various things also on YouTube where I talk about uh, these things. And so if you, if you just type in the name and look it up, you'll actually find a fair amount of presentation of, of some of this material. Yeah. The great the lectures are great. I will put a link to them in the description below. Thank you so much, Greg, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It's a fascinating conversation. Oh, uh, thank you very much, Cornelius. It's actually been a great to actually discuss some of this. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. Have a good one. Bye. Sure. Bye.